I joined John and his red healer Rusty as we put in several miles on a sunny spring day, winding our way through a neighborhood and along a nearby river to talk about the twists and turns of John's life. In the background, you'll hear sounds of activity all around us. Kids playing, home repair, lawns mowed, and birdsong. Before too long, it became evident that Rusty was in charge of the outing, and we followed him willingly, as he is a very determined dog. So, John, the first question I ask most people is your earliest memory, and it doesn't have to be anything special, but the first thing that you can remember as a conscious human being. Well, I think my earliest memory was being in my house in England, and my mother wasn't home, and we had a lady, Mrs. Baldwin, used to come over and clean. And she used to scuttle around the house with um, the vacuum cleaner. And she had thin wisps of hair on her head, so I always called her Baldy, because her name was Mrs. Baldwin and it seemed to work. Wow. <laughs> so that's as close as I can get. I may have made that up, but it seems to be embedded in my brain. And she was okay with that, or she just thought you were a silly little boy? I, I don't think I ever called it to her face. I see. <laughs> and you would have been about three, four? Probably somewhere in that area. But the next memory that I had was a whole lot more significant. It was my first day at school at St. John's Primary School. St. John's Church of England Primary School. And I remember it well because I immediately started crying, I want my mummy. And this went on <laughs> for a while. I persisted and I would not stop. And eventually two of us were taken to the headmaster's office because we were the only two in the class that wouldn't stop. And you were about five or six? Yeah, I would have been about then. And I, I think I was threatened with uh, being spanked, and then I finally shut up. <laughs> I remember that rather well. Did you tell your mom when you got home? Or did the, the, your teacher? Probably. Say yeah, I'm sure I did. And I'm sure they called my mother too and stuff like that and said, he won't be quiet. <laughs> Oh well. And so began my somewhat traumatic relationship to school. I, I didn't really do particularly well in schools. The first place that I went to... Rusty and I are going to... Yeah, he's, he's expecting to... Well, maybe we just follow what he wants to do. I am, I am good with Rusty's route. I just okay. don't want him to trip me up and I'll be uh, a okay. dog here. Well, we'll probably end up not going where we expected to go, but where he wants to go. Otherwise, we will... We're just going on your journey, really. I mean, Rusty's, <laughs> Rusty's driving the bus here. Uh, pretty much. No, for school, um, I didn't really care in primary school. I was excited. I was ecstatic that I got into the top 30 in my class. I finally broke that. This, <laughs> I got to be like 28th out of my class. I thought that that was good. Unfortunately, my mother thought it was less good than I did. 
I, I was I was basically deaf at the time anyway, so I you know I couldn't hear, so I didn't care. Why were you? I mean, did you have some sort of infection or? Oh yeah, multiple ear infections. Basically, rotted out my eardrums. So I was basically deaf. Uh, and so I, I spent all my time in the back row with my friend Stephen. Hello. How you doing? And um, but my idyllic life at my primary school ended when my mother said enough's enough and sent me to a private school headed up by Mrs. Malik. And it was fierce, intense, and very effective. For what your mother wanted or what you wanted? Yes. Oh, not what I wanted at all. I did not like that. I had no interest in any of those studies. But <clears throat> it, that's the way it was. She was incredibly effective. You know, the rate of getting into grammar schools, and you know, in England at the age of 11, you get segregated, or did back then, into schools that'll take you to, to university, and schools that'll take you to working in a factory or being a mechanic or that kind of thing. So you were attracted at a really young age? Very young age. At about the age of 11, you were split into groups. Anyway, this school was incredibly effective because fear. Fear actually worked. Now, that probably sounds horrible for a person who was in the teaching profession, no. but it actually worked. If we didn't do our homework, if we didn't study, if we didn't do well on our tests, they'd line us up and give us the cane. <laughs> Ow! It worked, and then I ended up in a technical school, which was absolutely stupid. That was my dad's idea, because he wasn't much of a mechanic in any way, and I never was much of a mechanic. But So I ended up at this uh, technical school, which was like on the edge of being able to get to college from it, but really most people didn't. I was one of only two who actually got to college. You know, by college I mean university, and there was London University, and I scraped into that thing. I went on to do their uh, geology, math and physics. And uh, I mean, uh, I, I can't say I thoroughly enjoyed it. I worked hard my first year, gave up in my second, and then the third year I thought, well, why not? <laughs> so I did what I was supposed to do. I got my degree at the age of 21, spent a year doing teaching training, and then that was followed by one year of, as a probationary teacher. It was absolutely miserable. I hated it, and so did the kids because I was trying to teach them things they didn't want to know. And uh, at about that time, I had become very interested in the American culture. How old were you then? I was uh, 21, 22, 23, that sort of age. I was really interested in San Francisco and Haight-Ashbury and all that lovely hippie stuff. What year was this? I would have been... Well, it would have been early 70s, very early 70s, because uh, I was born in 48, so that was uh, 69 that I became, uh, that I got my degree, and it was during that time period, so it would have been 68, 69, 70, that 
I was uh, very interested in the counterculture and American music and all that sort of stuff. And so I spent a lot of time hitchhiking across Canada. You know, it's, it's so interesting that you say that because a lot of times, you know, during that, during that time period, people in America were interested in sort of the culture in England. Absolutely. And, and you were... <laughs> oh, I didn't think much of the Beatles at all. Oh, I see. You know, I mean, I thought they were just a pop group for teeny boppers. You know, even though Sgt. Pepper came out, that, was, that kind of changed my mind a bit. No, these guys are actually good musicians. And they, of course, got into the 60s revolution okay. and stuff like that. So you were interested. You hitchhiked across Canada. Several times, there and back. Uh, I had relatives occasionally, one in Calgary, one in uh, Val Vancouver Island. So yeah, I went across and I also went down the, the coast into California. And uh, I went to Woodstock Did by you? completely accident. But how, would, how is it you get to Woodstock by accident? Well, I had specific plane tickets to get back. Oh. So when I got, my, uh, got closer to New York City, the, the only thing I could afford to do was to go to London to New York City. Right. Uh, and so... And then I had a, a few dollars to get across the country. Couldn't stay in hotels or anything like that. Where'd you stay? Oh, uh, occasionally in campgrounds, that mm. kind of a thing. Sometimes in the back of a VW, yeah, <laughs> you yeah. know, that sort of stuff. There's always VWs because that's all you hitchhike with. Oh, there's a VW coming. They'll stop for us. And they did? Oh, of course. Were you alone? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that's pretty crazy, wasn't it? Oh. You get, but you meet people. It shapes people you. People are nice. Yeah, I carried a guitar even though I couldn't play. It was very good because people would pick me up. <laughs> they thought you'd play music for them. Yeah, exactly. It was quite comical, really. So um, I did that by, and to finish the Woodstock story, whoops, sorry. Um, what happened was uh, I had a few days left and someone, I don't remember what car it was, but anyway, what they said was... Um, Hey, you want to go to Woodstock? And I said, what's that? Joanne! Nice Lovely day. Enjoy. Yes, will do, thank you. My dog's name is Rusty. You remember. We chatted. And I remembered your name from Joanne's Fabric. There you go. So... So you asked him what was Woodstock and he said... What's that? You asked what was Woodstock. What was it? Yes, you'd ask. Oh, it's a Excuse festival. Me. It's music, and okay. it'll be over uh, Sunday night. I said, oh, that'll work out all right, because my plane doesn't leave till Tuesday or something. Okay. So it actually worked, but contrary to what everyone thinks, it was a miserable experience in many respects, because it was raining, no bathrooms, no food, no shelter. It was probably the worst concert I've ever been to as far as physical conditions. Did you hear any great musicians? Uh, Joe Cocker. Okay. He was good. Uh, Ravi Shankar, I remember him. Sly and the Family Stone. I had their record. <laughs> when I was a little girl, I had their, their 45. Uh, yeah, I remember 45s and I even remember 78s. Um, 
So the, those are few. And those were the top, the three that you really recall? Those, the, yes, because I didn't stay long. Yeah. It wasn't, you know, after a half a day of this, you know, and with night coming, I thought, this is absolutely horrible. I'm, I'm taken off. Uh, I have been to many an outdoor concert, uh, like on the Isle of Wight in yeah. England. We'd go down there for three days and watch people like uh, Eric Clapton, you know, Jimi Hendrix, Moody Blues, that kind of stuff. We had a tremendous time, but you could get food. You know, there were bathrooms. There was the basic sort of human stuff. So I was used to concerts, but this was the worst. People were super nice, but physically it was uh, awful. So anyway, it was kind of cool that I got to go. But I think that the idyllic idea of Woodstock versus the reality of Woodstock. Yes. Oh yeah, it's a, it's a myth, really. It's a total myth that this was brilliant. There were brilliant bands. People were phenomenal. The music describing it, you know, by the time we got there sort of stuff, the Crosby, Stills, Natch stuff. Um, uh, there were some great songs. And uh, uh, people literally parked their cars uh, whenever, wherever they could on the way there. It's like, oh, this must be it. Park your car. You know. Uh, yeah. I mean, like in the road sort of thing to where you could barely get through. So <laughs> what was your experience like after you hitchhiked across Canada? I mean, whenever I feel like you take a, undertake an adventure of that magnitude, something shifts inside you. Well, I, I was very much attracted to America. And I continued to want to come to America and uh, the final time I did was to visit my sister. I, I fully intended to visit my sister in Alaska because she had actually moved there. And so I was going to do one more trip across, go visit my sister in Alaska. And then I was uh, going to do one or two things. I was either going to head straight down the coast again, go uh, back to California. California dreaming. Loved that California more than any place in the entire yeah. world. I had to live in California or go to California. And um, that didn't, uh, or the other thing that was absolutely on my mind was uh, moving to Australia. Wow. You know. <laughs> so you were all over the place with, with yeah. wanting to go somewhere but not England. Absolutely. England was a, a nightmare as far as I was concerned. I was one of the few people that managed to get a degree, right? That, right. Uh, that put me in the top 5% easily, right, as far as achievements. I mean, I, it was tough. It was really difficult to get that damn degree. I figured if you get a degree, you deserve to make a living. And you couldn't make a living. I was living at home. Uh, I was, had beaten up old cars, which basically I would get them prior to going in the junkyard, drive them until I took them to the junkyard. I had enough money to get drunk on Friday night, and that was about it. So there was, um, the economy was rough at that time. I made 1,000 pounds a year as a teacher. In terms of spending power, oh. it might have been the equivalent of 20,000 or something. I, I certainly couldn't afford an apartment. So when I got to Canada, uh, to, uh, not to Canada, when I got to 
uh, that was weird. When I got to system. Uh, to Alaska, uh, I started, you know, I, I stayed a while. I don't think I had, a, well, I did have a return ticket. I just didn't use it. I started meeting people and I started working <laughs> at a daycare center and I absolutely loved it. Really? Absolutely little loved kids. it. It was little kids. I, I mean, there was so much fun, and I was so appreciated because mostly it was women, and they wanted to see, you know, see. I think I was the only guy working there, so they kind of liked that, you know, that the, the kids could have a, a male well, figure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed that, and. Uh, of course, I wasn't supposed to be working there because I didn't actually have a green card. So they just paid you under the table? Pretty much. They, I had an assumed name and someone else's social security number. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> actually, it was a woman, which is kind of even, com even more comical. <laughs> so... That sort of worked out for a while, but then the immigration people started pushing me a little bit because I only had a student visa. How about we go down here and then go across to the 11th Street access? That's fine. Um, I think Rusty is in charge, though. Yes, he is pretty much. I can see that he's walking us and you're not walking him for sure. Right, exactly. He just likes to... Anytime there's new smells, he's happy. He, he is happy. So, the pressure was on. I had a limited time left, you know, to, uh, to be there. Otherwise, I was going to get deported. I suppose I could have just gone underground and... Not especially in Alaska attention. at that time. I think I probably could have hidden forever. I had a good friend of mine who went to LA, and I don't think he ever got any work papers. And when he when he went back to England twenty years later, when his parents died, they wouldn't let him back in the in the in the country into America. You know. So he has a man without a country. <laughs> yeah, he, he eventually got it sorted out. But um, anyway. Uh, yeah, in my case, that was the situation, and I was about to get the boot. But a rather interesting thing happened in that uh, a lady at the daycare center decided that uh, she was just fine with us getting married for a, getting a green card marriage. Oh. So I had, I had a green card marriage. And how long did that last? Not very long, really. And that really wasn't my choice, actually. She was... Um, Pretty nice lady. I rather liked her. But she didn't want to stay married to you. Well, the problem was I was still a bit, you know, hippy dippy and all that. Finding myself, I really wasn't that interested in wealth or any of those kind of things. I was more interested in experience and life and what's the meaning of life. I was trying to find myself How in many you respects. How old you're still in your early twenties then? I was still in my early twenties. Yeah. And uh, anyway, she wanted someone who was going to be somebody. Ah. You know, it was very obvious that she was looking for a fisherman who was head of the fleet sort of thing, or a construction guy that had his own company. That sort of stuff. She really wanted someone big time. 
So basically she dumped me and she went through a series of husbands who were like that. I, ne I needed to make some money in order to have some freedom to do the things that I kind of wanted to do. And I couldn't do the things I wanted to do without some money. So my goal then became to make some money. And strangely, while in the process of trying to build this dome and doing a mock-up dome in my backyard, I ran into an electrical contractor who helped us out. And he told me how much apprentice electricians made, which was about twice minimum wage. Yeah. And I'm thinking, hey, I went to college. I learned math and physics. I know electricity. Ding, ding, ding. That's better than plumbing. I don't want to crawl underneath someone's basement and Deal. mess around with toilet water. No, no. You know? <laughs> That's I not for me. I can see the there. So yeah, oh, and all I got to do is twist little wires together and understand which, wh what electricity does. That should be a piece of cake. Of course, electrical construction is absolutely nothing like that at all, but in my head, it was. So, I went go off to the apprenticeship school and apply. Well, I was actually too old. What, you were too I, well, old? Well, I was about to be too old because uh, I actually missed the cutoff date for applications. They, cl they closed on a Friday, but it was a Monday and I was 26 and would be 27 by the time the next time it came around. So here I was messed up by a, by a day. And so one thing I had learned is that I could use my English language, my, my accent, quite effectively if I wanted to turn it on. You charmed someone. <laughs> so I'm chatting with the lady there and uh, I said, well, I think, you know, I'd make a pretty good candidate. Look, I got a good degree in all this sort of stuff, you know, and, you know, are you sure you can't help me out a little bit here, you know? You know, you'd, you'd be getting someone who is pretty qualified for this kind of thing. And, you know, I'm just... Laying it on thick? I'm just laying it on as thick as I possibly uh. can. <laughs> and, and she says, hold on a minute. And she goes around the back. I think she talked to the, the director, you know, and said, you know, hey, bud who was also uh, known as Jelly Belly. That's another story. <laughs> we got this applicant here with a degree in math and physics that wants to do stuff, and he missed the deadline, you know, because we actually closed it, you know, on Friday. So anyway, she comes back and says, well, John, um, the application that you put in on Friday looks like it's pretty good. <laughs> I look at her and I said, yeah, I'm glad I got it in on time. <laughs> I see. So that was your so, sneaky way of getting into... Uh, so I kind of snuck in that way. And it was kind of funny, really. You, wait, Rusty. I don't think he really understands traffic very well. No, but he is a great dog. 
Alrighty. Here we go. We can walk now, Rusty. Right. Come on. Whoops. That's I almost okay. lost it. Good, Rusty. It's a little bit trickier with Rusty. Come on. Because he goes he, in. He doesn't, he doesn't walk in a straight line. No, and he doesn't like noise. You huh. know, the noise of this traffic of road, stuff. Yeah. Uh, once he gets over there, he'll be a little better. Of course, he'll yank me in every direction that there's a smell, but that's okay. So, I remember the first day I went to school. Am I still connected? You are. You okay, are. the first day I go to school. <laughs> Jelly Belly. Who's about 300 pounds, you know. That's a big, uh, big person. Yeah, a power lineman. Uh, kind of explosive. Pretty funny at times. He comes in and he, he starts yelling and he's, he's got a dustbin lid and he's banging on it. And he says, I want to know who signs their name like this. <laughs> and it's total scribble, right? I'm going to check I'm your mic in. I'm just right. going to move it a little bit lower than your scarf, and you're good. And okay. then we'll pull that around. Yeah, run that around. We've got it and gets hot. So Jelly okay. Belly says... Who, who signs their name like this? <laughs> Scribbles, you know. And I'm thinking, oh no, my first day in school, and I'm in trouble, right? And I, I knew it wasn't me. And, you know, so I said, uh, I think that's me. <laughs> he says... Come up here now. <laughs> so I go up to the front. And he says, All right, you're teaching this class. I go, What? <laughs> you're teaching this. You got a degree in math and physics? You teach it. Uh, he just wanted to pass the buck and you just happened to be convenient. Uh, Is that what it was? Basically, I, I don't know what he was doing. He was just uh, he was putting on a show. He was really good at putting on shows. So, um, Strangely enough, years later, I did teach the school and I thoroughly enjoyed it uh, because in the, actually in the meantime what had happened, even though I wasn't a particularly brilliant electrician, mechanically, uh, they decided that I would be a good union rep. So I became a union rep and then when I group, which was led by Jelly Belly, you know, when we lost power, they decided to put me uh, as an instructor for the school. So I got to do that, and those were really good times because it was proper hours, reasonable hours, and I was doing something I thoroughly enjoyed, and, and I did a really good job, you know, teaching the kids. But, some, but in the meanwhile, some things had happened with me in that I... Uh, Were you still trying to find yourself? No, I, I knew where, what I was doing by this point. Okay. You know, uh, I'd got married uh, again uh, to my current wife <laughs> years later. And how long has that been? Uh, well, we've been married since, what was it, 77 or something? A long honking time, I know that. <laughs> so, um, up there I'd started investing and I was quite clever in that, are we, are we good? Yeah, great. I was quite clever at figuring the ups and the downs and I'd really leverage things 
So before too long, I was really quite well off. I had a ton of apartments, you know, bunches and bunches of them, and it was going really well. And uh, so I was, uh, you know, I'd been a union rep and all that kind of stuff. And But then what happened was that the economy fell apart in 87. Mm. It just disintegrated. And all of a sudden, I didn't have any more tenants. I mean, they went, and then the landlords were cutting their own throats. So apartment buildings were uh, horrible money losers because Alaska relies on construction, and without oil money going into the government, then what happens is uh, the money doesn't hit the streets. It, it went from like six billion in income to three billion, and three billion was enough to run the government. So there was nothing went out on the streets for construction. So the construction workers left. The apartment went empty, and I got left holding the bag. And uh, I was sitting on a bunch of apartments. And off you go, Rusty. Rusty's going to give us a break. <laughs> yes. So, uh, I, yeah, so I, it, it dawned on me fairly quickly that there was no way that I could survive. And the bank started chasing me. There's a few little stories I have in there, too. I thought I'd kind of got away with it all and given the keys back and walked away. But one piece of property that I'd sold to someone else was foreclosed on and they decided to come back on me. Because the bank suddenly realized that they needed to go after individuals with judicial foreclosures. Which means that you're personally responsible. Oh. Prior to that they said, yeah, we'll take the keys. It was bizarre. So, and there was, there was just, I was even offered by one bank, they said, uh, yeah, we'll reduce the loan. I, I was doing a, a fixing up a two fiveplexes, but the the rates. This was back when rates were like twelve percent oh, interest right. rates. I said, look, I can't do it. I need the rates cut. They said, well, you're a good person. You're a great credit risk. Uh, we'll cut your rates. You've got to take on more apartments, though. I said, what? They said, yeah, we'll give you a whole bunch more apartments. You can have them all. I said, look, I'm underwater, I'm drowning. <laughs> you know, don't tie more rocks to me, please. You know, and at that point I realized there was no way I was getting out of it. They just wanted to offload the property. They wanted to offload, yeah. it was so bad. They would, have just, they, they would have literally given me bunches of duplexes. And I could have had them anywhere. I could have had them in Wasella, which is just outside of Anchorage. I could have had them in Juneau. I could have had them anywhere I wanted. Whatever was in their portfolio, they'd have given them to me. Free. <laughs> That's how crazy it was. And anyway, um, I thought I was in the clear and I could just simply go, go back to being broke. But I had skills, so I thought I'd be fine. But then the banks decided to chase me on this one thing. And uh, I, I realized that there was just no way I could survive in Alaska. So basically, when we got the notice, and this is a funny story, 
the, the mailman comes up and they've got to serve you, right? So he comes up and he's an old hippie guy. And I look at him and I see the name of the attorney on the, the, the envelopes, you know? And I, I look at him and I say, it looks like this is from an attorney. It's probably some kind of foreclosure thing, isn't it? He sort of looks at me, you know, gives me that look. And I say, oh, look, this one looks like it's torn. <laughs> and he's, he looked at me and said, yeah, I think it's torn. <laughs> so so I, you didn't get served. I looked at it and I said, you know, if the person who's written there yeah, <laughs> doesn't actually pick it up, they haven't been served, have they? He sort of looks at me and says, no, if that isn't picked up, that's not proper service. I said, oh, well, I think he might have left. <laughs> you two were just having none, were you? Oh, it was funny. It was, it was an absolutely priceless conversation. Within a week, we'd loaded everything we had into a 40-foot container, including an old Plymouth Horizon. And then we jumped in my AMC Eagle which I considered an Alaska Cadillac at the time because it was four-wheel drive and had electric stuff and oh yes, you're having a good time. So, <laughs> and we were going down the highway and it was the end of the year and every night that we woke up in some motel, there was snow on the ground. Yeah, there, I mean, it was December in Alaska, so, right? We were, this, I think we left like in October, November. Oh, okay. When we got down and I took my electrical contractor test. Oh, there's a bike behind us. Which I had previously taken in Alaska. And you know, and I passed that. And then my father-in-law lent me $10,000. Which was an absolutely, completely and utterly inadequate amount to start an electrical contracting business. But I didn't know any better. So I bought a van, didn't have any credit, went around town with flyers saying, we'll work for $25 an hour. <laughs> I, I didn't know what to do. And uh, things actually turned out all right. Uh, eventually, I did all right. Um, the weirdest career move that I ever had, I call it a career move, is I was doing some work, and like I said before, I'm not much of a mechanic. Anyway, I should have known physics though. You know, I was pushing on a, a drill up a tall ladder, and the bottom of the ladder slipped out. Down I went, and busted my wrist, and bruised myself all over. This was over in uh, Roslyn. Uh, and uh, anyway, the end result was I couldn't work. I call it a great career move because I still had to make money. So I decided, well, I'll hire people to do the work that I have. And then I realized that these guys are better electricians than me. <laughs> But I'm a good mathematician. I can estimate. Sorry, I'm just laughing. <laughs> What's that? You realize they're better electricians than you. Yeah. Oh, well, they were. They were, better. they were mechanical. You know, I mean, I may know the theory and I may be efficient, 
but these guys knew how to turn and burn, you know. They could, they, they were wizards with tools. My dad never had any tools except ones that were rusted shut, only three of them. You know, I never was any good at that stuff. Never really have been that good at it. I can kind of cope with it, but it's, it doesn't come naturally to me. But doing estimates, turned out I was really so good. So the business portion of this was somewhere you excelled. I did really well, yes. So you figured out, someone else can do the labor much better than me, yeah. but I can organize things and yeah. manage things and, and this will be successful. I, I was a natural at it. And the, the irony is that, you know, I, I, I was sort of escaping from my dad in many respects. I couldn't stand the fact that he went off to, did the same thing every single day for business and here I am in a business you know <laughs> doing basically the same kind of stuff as he was doing a little bit different so feel but what yes. was your relationship with your dad like uh, a little bit tempestuous uh, he didn't like that I was kind of a you know a hippie type and I, and I you know I don't blame him because I really wasn't getting anywhere in the sense, the normal sense of the word. So he wasn't impressed with that. <laughs> and then I, I, I started doing all right in Alaska, you know, buying properties and stuff. And then I became a union rep. And I'll never forget the words he, he said. He said, a union rep? I'd rather you were a piano player in a whorehouse in New Orleans. Oh, <laughs> the, the disappointment was epic. <laughs> What? Oh, I thought it was a brilliant comment. Well, <laughs> well, it definitely shed light on his opinion of union reps. Yeah, it did, didn't it? It was pretty funny. Well, what about your mom? Oh, we had a great relationship, you know. With, you know, I was, like all kids, you know, I struggled mentally and emotionally and all that sort of stuff. And sometimes would stay up all night, you know, practically. You know, I'd be trying to talk my way through all the things that right. teenagers and yeah. stuff do. It was all right. We had a great time and we had a good relationship. You know, even with my dad, you know, after all that stuff, well, we did all right. So yeah, I have no complaints. My dad gave me a lot of gifts uh, that I didn't really realize he'd given me. And uh, my mother was just a, wonderful loving person pretty sharp too she could do big crossword puzzles and things so don i always ask and i try to ask this question about how you see yourself versus how you think other people see you Ooh, that's an interesting question well i think your your i think our perceptions of ourselves yeah are always different Rusty. than how others see us Rusty. Rusty. Let's tie you up for one second here. Um, I guess we'll start with how you see yourself. <laughs> that, that's a really interesting question. I think I've spent my entire life struggling to succeed in many respects. Um, I've always wanted to check a lot of boxes. Uh, I did not want to be catching the same train every day, wearing the same suit every day. T 
turned out my dad had a really interesting job that I absolutely loved, but I hated the thought of that kind of a thing. So my goal in life was always to check a lot of boxes. And throughout that, I've, I've done it, and I think I've done it really well, and I've had a phenomenally interesting life. And uh, I don't have any regrets at all about what I've done. I'm, I'm pretty proud of it, I'd say. But for other people, because I have a tendency to be a little bit vocal, you know, jump in, dominate, you know, that kind of stuff, probably people think I'm just an arrogant asshole, you know, <laughs> you know. <laughs> That's okay, I don't really care. <laughs> yeah. But I think some people kind of like me because I, I make people laugh quite a bit. So you think other people, because you are opinionated, see yeah. you as an arrogant asshole? I, I think there's a lot of people who probably dislike me intensely because I don't really hold back a lot. I can, I can empathize with that particular aspect of your personality. <laughs> or as how you see yourself, that's what I mean. Yeah, well, you know, I've, I've learned over the years that I'm more disappointed with myself when I don't say anything. You know, I look at it afterwards and I go, you know, one of them once was just a simple jury matter, you know. The guy was obviously guilty, you know. And I, I didn't say enough. I wasn't Were you on the clear jury? enough. I was on the jury. Yeah. Were you the foreman? No, I wasn't. And uh, it, it disappointed me that I wasn't, I didn't stick to my guns. I let everyone run me over. Oh. And I, I've, I've, I'm on a lot of groups now. Uh, you know, I'm well enough off to where that I spend all my time doing community type stuff. And uh, on these groups, sometimes I'm, uh, I'm a total minority as far as opinion goes, like my church one especially. But at least I'll say things like, well, I think what you're doing is you're spending one-time money on what should be an annual expense, that kind of thing. And that bothers me, so I can't support this budget. And they, they sort of look at me like, but we've got the money. And th that's not the point. That's not how you run a business. That's, you know, so, I mean, I'm abundantly clear on my opinion on these things. We're going this way, Rusty. But I'm glad now that I will say it. Other people will look at me like, why are you stirring up trouble? So you're, in, I guess what I hear you saying is that people, in your experience, people would rather just not make waves than yeah. have to deal with more complex things that they might have to put more effort into to work out? Yeah. yeah. If it's easy, if it avoids controversy, then they will take that path. Whereas I'm much more likely to say, look, we've got a problem with this. You know, we've got some issues with uh, interpersonal relationships that, that just is, is a bit of a poison. We've got to deal with that if we're going to move forward. 
Oh, no, 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 no. We don't want to, oh, we don't want to rock the boat. You know what I find is interesting? Do you, do you find that that's part of like, is that, is that aspect of things kind of British culture in your mind some ways? <laughs> that's kind of funny, isn't it? That's a little irony for you. Well, I in, mean. In England, absolutely. Absolutely, it would be to don't rock the boat. Right. You know, we don't want to bring this up, and yet here I am over here stirring at the pot. You know. Oh. I, did, <laughs> so, I did see that. That is kind of funny. No one's ever pointed that out to me. That is funny. <laughs> it depends on the group, you know. Uh, some groups are completely different from others. Our, our church group is particularly, uh, shall we say, um, meek and mild you know they whew, they just don't really want to have any issues at all and they won't speak up unless they want to speak to me separately in which case they'll complain and then I go out there and I'll bring up their issues and I'll get my head cut off and they won't back me up <laughs> And again, I can empathize with this particular <laughs> aspect of your personality. We just had a conversation and you sit there like a bump on a log, you know. <laughs> what? <laughs> Did you do this deliberately? Did you just set me up? No, it's not that. We're not trying to set me up. I think that it can, um, I think people want to have issues dealt with. They're afraid of backlash and they want yeah. to find a spokesperson. Yeah. And it's oftentimes they want someone else to deal with that right. than themselves and then sometimes they're willing to back you up and sometimes they just aren't. Yeah. Rusty is ready to be off leash again, isn't he? It's, it's all good. It's all good. He's usually pretty good. Now, as long as you know that I've got treats, you're going to be just fine. That looks you? disgusting. Is that papaya? No, it's actually pepperoni. Oh, okay. <laughs> he's, he's fine with pepperoni. He Rusty's, loves the stuff. Rusty's a man of the world. He's got yeah. some pepperoni he, he wants pepperoni, you know. He'll do almost anything for pepperoni. <laughs> now that we're on the topic of Rusty, how did you get Rusty here? Oh, um, yeah, there's another story. So if we're looking at Rusty, Rusty is a red healer? He's a red <laughs> healer. I've had him a couple of years and I got him at Sunny Skies Animal Shelter and uh, I, I had had previously I had had a Springer it was a lovely dog that was Chelsea and uh, I thoroughly enjoyed Chelsea but like all dogs you know Chelsea died a couple of years back and uh, I was looking for another dog and it was a bit of a process. We went through a couple of possibilities at the shelter. One, we were denied. You know, they wouldn't give it to us because it clearly wouldn't get along with cats. We have one cat. Uh, but it was just as well. And then I happened to see Rusty. And um, he really didn't interest me at all because he was kind of in his cage and kind of boring. Are you kidding? This dog is, just suits you perfectly. <laughs> I know, I know. And so I just passed him off, you know, passed him by. I thought, yeah, yeah. He's kind of an adventure kind of dog, you know? He's a busy guy. I know he is. And so... You think he's going to jump in the river, John? No, he's not. Okay. He's, he's fine. He's he does this every now and then. Oh, uh, he got a sip. 
<laughs> Look at that smile on his face. He's, he's just happy. So, uh, anyway, um, next time I went, well, there's actually a backstory. I, uh, they ran into business troubles, Sunny Sky did. Yeah. They were getting foreclosed on. So I thought, well, I think I can help them. I thought, well, this is a good use of money. I still had a little bit of money left from, from England, from my parents. Here. So I, I took that and uh, bought, bought the building and then rented to Sunny Skies. So, so you're more invested as far as a landlord goes. Yeah, right? exactly. Anyway, so I'm over there and uh, someone's walking rusty. And I look at him and I thought, you know, it's not bad to have a dog who's kind of quiet, who's a little bit shy, because they'll probably flourish. You know, it takes a little while. Seeing a dog in a shelter is a ridiculous way of judging because they're completely and utterly different when you get them into the real world. But I thought someone, you know, a dog who is kind of quiet and shy, not too aggressive, not too obnoxious, is probably a good dog. And so I sort of looked at him again. And I thought, you know what? I actually like this dog. So we took the dog and he's actually really flourished. Well. He, I mean, he's a healer, and I will just, if I can digress, and I usually don't tell stories on the podcast, but uh -huh. I, I think blue healers, or healers in general, are incredibly smart dogs. Oh, they are. My, my friend had a healer. His name was Bob, and I was visiting them, and my friend has four cats. Not yeah. because she wants them, because she lives in Idaho on a ranch, and they just show up. One yes. dies, another one shows up. So she's always got four cats, and I'm not so much of a cat person, and I was sitting in this chair in their living room, and this cat, and he sort of had a like skin condition, it was a bit of a mangy looking thing. He jumped in my lap. Now, yeah. I didn't yell at the cat. I just went, ugh. Like I just made like a, a face and made a noise like of my displeasure. And Bob trotted over and he just took his snout and launched that cat <laughs> about five feet across the room. And then he just turned around and went and laid back down. And I thought, my God, that is the most intuitive animal on the planet. That's quite he, brilliant, isn't he it? He didn't bite the cat. He didn't bark. Uh -huh. He didn't do anything aggressive. Just didn't get off. He just punted him with his nose, and the cat kind of flew. And, <laughs> and the cat was fine, landed on its feet. And, you know, if I ever get another dog, I will look at a healer. Those are really smart dogs. They I mean, are. Well, all of the herding animals are smart. But, I mean, <laughs> he just got rid of the cat, and then he didn't do anything to the cat. Now... Just so you know, the cat peed on the bed where I was staying in the guest room several times after that. Because, you know, he's going to get back at me for sure. Yeah, exactly. But I think healers are great dogs. And yeah. Rusty is, is, he's amazing. <laughs> and he does suit you really well. Because you're a curious person and Rusty is clearly a very curious dog. Yes, he's, uh, he's also a little bit... Uh, strong-willed shall we say and i don't see that at you about you at all <laughs> oh, no 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 not at all <laughs> he, he's a great dog for uh, hiking yeah as long as i take him hiking once a week he's fine rusty rusty you want to grab him rusty rusty no how old is he five i think he's closer to seven now oh. Uh, have a bit of grass. So, 
your investment in the animal shelters, that's, that was partially Good Samaritan, partially, or was it all Good Samaritan? Well, the original intent was Good Samaritan, but I've, I've discovered some weird things about my investment uh, abilities. Um, sometimes when you do things for a, a non-financial reason, you actually get a, a better payoff. I, I did a similar thing with the Tribune building downtown. And, you know, I bought this building in 95 and the upstairs was empty. Um, and downtown, no one was up, upstairs downtown. And I saw this building and I thought, this is a nice building and the price is pretty reasonable. And the, the tenants pay the, what would be the mortgage downstairs the upstairs is completely empty so why don't I use my electricians you know in their spare time to fix it up and I tell you what I'll do I'm going to make this historically correct you know uh, which is not a smart financial move that tends to be a money pit well it, it, it should be to do something like that I mean, it, it is not a smart business decision at all, and I knew it. But <laughs> and people were telling me, why are you doing this? No one's going to rent from you. And I said, you know what? It's my money, and I don't care. Okay. <laughs> you know? So I started off on this, and, and, and my, I, my goal really was to do a historically correct renovation. And that's exactly what I did. And before I was three quarters of the way through, I was getting people asking if they could rent from me. And by the time I was done, you know, uh, it was full. <laughs> and I'm thinking, whoa, that's uh, for, a, for a dumb business decision. Uh, you know, it worked out all right. And then other people go, well, I guess he's not as stupid as he looks, is he? You know? <laughs> and they started doing it. And they were successful too. It, it actually worked out. And there was the same thing with uh, Sunny Skies. I, I bought it really because I thought this would be a nice thing to do for the animals and all that sort of stuff. You can't have the shelter go under. I mean, that'd be terrible. But actually, it's turned out that um, to be a good investment too. So. On the other hand, I've, I've made what I thought were brilliant investments and they've turned out to be dismal failures. So you just don't know, do you? John, is there, I mean, I, I, I wonder about, you know, once you get to a certain age, is there anything left that you want to do? Because you seem to be a person, like you said, that checks off boxes. And yeah, I do. I like checking off boxes. So what else is left on your list for boxes to check off? Uh, that's a really good question. <laughs> I don't think I know the answer. I don't, I mean, maybe you do, maybe you don't. I just wondered if you did. No, I mean, the last few years, I retired very early. Uh, not really by choice, but the recession was coming. And uh, I was working for less than, uh, less than overhead, which is not a smart thing to do. Um, and then I got into the politics, did a little of that for a while. Ah, uh, so I've achieved as much as I really want there. I do like doing this community service type stuff still. I'm, I'm interested in the conservation district. 
uh, we have an event or are supposed to have an event coming up May the 9th, mm. uh, which will probably get canceled. Or maybe push back. It, yes, but, but uh, you know, I woke up in the middle of the night and I thought, you know what? You know, we will turn this into a virtual event. And what we can do is we can have people like from the conservation district clip in the ivy. There's a tree right there. Clip in the ivy showing how that done. Do film clips. Assemble a bunch of film clips and then put them out so that next time around we can push the event and say, look, this is what we're going to do. This is the conservation district. This is the fairs, farm, education thing. These are the runners. You know, these are the walkers. This is the Buckley to Ording half marathon, stuff like that. This is the foothill trail. This is the missing link. All those kind of things. It, it's no, it won't be the same, but it'll certainly be a great launching pad for if it's delayed or, you know, to fall or to next year. So you're thinking, you know, I've, I've got a situation where I may not be able to get people together. And so yeah. now I've got to start thinking differently about how right. I want to do something. So is that how your brain works? I think you have to be nimble. If you're in a difficult situation, if you're not nimble, you know, you're, you're going to get kicked around. Mm. You know, uh, sometimes you just can't get out of it. I couldn't get out of the 87 problem that I had in Alaska, uh, but I did get out of it. I got out of it quickly. I didn't prolong the agony. I, I think you have to do that. How do you get out of a jam? Sometimes you win, sometimes you lose, but you just got to make the best of it and realize it's not the end of the world, you know? Whoops, we're going the wrong way. Rusty has decided he wants to visit these small dogs. Or not. Or not. He just wants to go down here a little bit. Yeah. We could. It's hard to know. Rusty seems to be like... He'll go after any smell at all. Uh. So to answer your question as far as big dreams, uh, you know, you get to a certain age where you're not going to take big risks. You know, maybe play with things a little bit just for amusement do some artistic type projects. Then I, I now have a, a grandchild, and that's kind of cool. Has that been a different experience for you altogether? Yeah, it is, really. So, uh, yeah, she's uh, heading, uh, she's almost three. How are you doing? So, your granddaughter? Yeah, so we'll have, have a granddaughter. That makes things interesting. Uh, of course, that's... Uh, a big thing, as far as my wife goes, more than anything else, she's up there all the time, which is great. Um, yeah, my, my, my kids are doing well. I like that. But as far as doing more, I, I don't think there's any next big, huge thing. But lots of little things, lots of fun things. I like being on the Conservation District Board. I like being involved in Main Street. Uh, I quite like being in the church on, the, on their group, but maybe not as much as I should. But, that, you know, and I like this event that's coming up. You know, I've really kind of carved out quite an interesting uh, life at this point. Have you ever been really scared? 
really scared? Did you ever put yourself in a situation or been put in a situation where you were just absolutely fearful for your life? Um, I ask because I've been surprised at the answers, so I always ask. Uh, that, that's really a difficult one. Uh, certainly in England there was a tendency to get involved in situations. Uh, we had three weekends in a row that were just absolutely scary. And this is when I was out drinking on a Friday night sort of a thing. And uh, <laughs> one of them was kind of funny. And that was uh, an argument developed. We were in a Chinese restaurant and an argument developed. Uh, but uh, it was about the money, you know, the payment. And it just got louder and louder and louder. Then eventually this whole slew of Chinese people came out of the basement you know, wielding noodle staves and, and throwing stuff. And <laughs> so we just ran like the wind to the bathrooms and locked ourselves in. Um, Afraid for, men you were, huh? Oh yeah, I mean, total wusses. You know? <laughs> uh, that was a little bit scary. There's, there was a few things like that that happened over there. Over here, probably the scariest things were uh, on mountains. You know, I can, can remember a few of them. I, I, I don't know that I was that scared in difficult conditions. There was, there was some nightmarish type conditions at times. What mountain were you on? Well, the one that I remember the most, uh, kind of fondly, crazily enough, was, was Mount Elborus which is the tallest mountain in Europe. It's actually in Russia. So we were there and it was obvious that we weren't going to be able to climb because the window that we had, uh, the weather was going to be horrendous. But, you know, we did all the sort of acclimatization and training, etc., etc. And then, you know, we thought, well, might as well go today, it doesn't look any better tomorrow, etc., etc. So we left. I know from, and this was from about, where were we at? Probably about 14,000 feet or something like that. Up at the barrel stoves is what they call it. And it was raining sleet type stuff, and it was freezing on us, and we couldn't see. And it, it made every single one of us white. Oh. The only way we could tell any of us apart was uh, by the color of the boots. Oh, Gosha, you got orange boots. How are you doing? <laughs> very, very quickly, people said, ah, this is lunatic. And they went down. Well, when you go down, you take, uh, you, you take a guide with you. And pretty soon, there, there was a shortage of guides compared to the number of people in the climbing group. So they decided, okay, this is what we're going to do. The Russian guy is going to go out with the four best climbers, which included my son, because he was a whole lot fitter than I was. So they made their way. And the rest of us, those four of us, had to go down. This really upset us. <laughs> you wouldn't believe it, but all of us were in a circle. And we just started crying. 
really? We just we were bawling our eyes out because we couldn't go any further. Oh. Uh, and so we went down. Come on, Rusty. We gotta go. Rusty, come. Let's go. You want to go further, don't you? But I tell you what, I might have to bribe you. Can you get out the pepperoni? Yeah, I might have to bribe you. Come on, Rusty. I know you want to go further. Come on. Mr. Rue. I hate to think that Rusty's in better shape than me, but I think he is. He's... <laughs> he knows very well that if I pull that thing, it'll come right off. He says, no, I'm still going that way. Come on, Rusty. <laughs> come on, Rusty. Wow. And from here, it doesn't get good. So <laughs> okay, let's, right. let's keep going and then we'll turn wherever we can. <laughs> you won. You were bossed by your dog. I know. I lost that one completely. <laughs> so how did you get down the mountain? Oh, we had a guide. We got down fairly easily. It, it really wasn't that bad. But you were scared then. You uh, were all crying. We were all crying. And that wasn't so much a fear one. There have been times on mountains where I've been a little more afraid because you'd be on a, like a ledge sort of a thing. Rainier's got one or two of those. And now we're going this way. Sorry about this. That's okay. Okay. So, Don, let's circle back because you said something earlier <laughs> about when you were a kid you had lost your hearing. Yes. I was wondering how you got your hearing back. Well, I'll, I'll give you the brief version. Well, how uh, did you lose it? You said you had some ear Well, I, I lost it because in, in England, the healthcare system was not the finest, and I had a lot of ear infections. And this was in the 50s? Yes, absolutely. And I, I, I had a series of ear infections from um, probably my earliest memory to um, when... Uh, uh, you know, when I was past my teens. And the end result was my eardrums got rotted out. So, anyway, uh, when I visited my sister in Alaska, and was starting to kind of get settled in there. You still had no hearing through school, or did you lip read? Uh, I really needed to lip read. And it wasn't pure lip reading, it was, I, ha I have to look at you, I can see how you're talking, so I could figure it out. Facial expression. Yeah, exactly, yeah, and I kind of know what you're saying. But if you weren't looking at me, good luck. Anyway, uh, there was a little incident involving a lady up there who got rather upset with me. I won't go into details, okay. but she dumped... Uh, tea on me. <laughs> and, Hot tea or cold tea? Uh, it, it was warm, it wasn't scalding, but it, it went in my ear. Oh. Right, and I knew what the end result of that would be. I would get an ear infection. It was absolutely guaranteed if I got any water in my ear that I would get an ear infection. So, anyway, sure enough, get an ear infection and go to the doctors. Now this is in Alaska. And my brother-in-law worked for the um, CDC, you know. So he, he was actually stationed in a, a, a native health hospital up there. 
and just turns out that there are a huge number of ear diseases amongst the you know Eskimos and the Indians up there so they actually have the ability to practice a lot of the surgery anyway they, they look in my ears and they go uh, you know what you got going on here John uh, no he said, well, here's what's happened. Your eardrum is growing down the canal and it's, it's blocking up the place where if you have an infection, the liquids are supposed to go out. So what it's likely to do, what they call it, the cholesteatoma, what it's likely to do is blow back into your brains. Oh. And uh, that can be fatal. <laughs> what? <laughs> so, I guess that really frightened you. Uh, yeah, maybe that was one thing that frightened me. <laughs> Except that there's actually a cure, and that's to get operated on. So, my brother-in-law sorted out a surgeon who'd had a lot of practice, and uh, that's um, that's what happened. They they fixed up one ear. In that one, they actually removed the, the middle bone. There's the uh, incus, malleus, and stapes. Removed the middle one, joined them up, uh, grafted some tissue from uh, above my ear onto where the drum was supposed to be, and uh, off we. Uh, and that ear was good. And then they did the same on the other side. And this, you couldn't have this done in England because no one knew to do it, or you just. This would have been an elective surgery, and it would have been way down the list. And besides, we didn't know any dangers were going on. I was just, I just had bad hearings because I had perforated eardrums. Uh, that's how it was. In, in England, my observation is, if you have an emergency, like a heart attack, they will give you great care. If you have a problem like a a leaky heart valve, they're probably not going to do anything about it because your wait list to get in is uh, might be three months, something like that. So until you actually have a critical situation and need to be in the hospital, they're not going to bother to look after you. So did that change your life, being able to hear? Oh uh, yeah, it was quite remarkable. I could actually hear a whole lot better, of course. That was nice. <laughs> Did it change my life? Uh, I wouldn't say it changed my life, but it, at least it didn't, I mean, it wasn't like a dramatic change, but it was a major improvement in the quality of my life. For, for one thing, I didn't struggle with conversations. You know, some people thought I was just stoned all the time or something because I really couldn't hear what was going on properly. Yeah, it was a major improvement, you're right. And people thought differently of you after that because they thought, you were lucid. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, he's a little on the ball. He's, he's not a stoner after all. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, yes, I, I never really thought about that, but it probably did make a major difference. Huh. <laughs> How old were you when you had the surgery? Uh, 21, 22, 23, 24 or thereabouts. Okay. Yeah. And so your hearing now is good? It was good until about the last four or five years when it started uh, deteriorating, just like 
happens with a lot of people when they got older. So uh, I have hearing aids now. Um, I can hear better now without the hearing aids than I could back then, that's for sure. Uh, but with the hearing aids, I'm pretty, pretty good, really. I got no complaints. I always think it's interesting how you have to think about the, the small pieces that change your life. Oh, that, that's huge. Just little, tiny little things that happen. You know, like that electrical contractor that came by and uh, helped us with our table saw so that I could work on my dome that I could chat with. And uh, he told me about electrical and lighting. And Change the trajectory of your life. It, it, it changed it a hundred percent. Just one little conversation with one person and it's like, boom, I go off in a 45 degree angle, you know, boom, off I go. And it worked really well. So yeah, it, you sort of look back and you go, wow, if I hadn't had that conversation, my life wouldn't have gone that way at all. <laughs> and there are lots of little ones like that. And those are the sort of things that make you think about religion a little bit. You say, well, I wonder if there's someone who's kind of giving me a little nudge every now and then. So <laughs> it, does your faith play into your life a lot? Or is it something that's uh, just part of your life? Um, in, a, in, like a, in a larger sense, it just accompanies you? Or is it sort of punctuates your life, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Some uh, people, for them, religion is all-encompassing, and other people, it, sort of smaller aha moments? Uh, I would say smaller aha and uh, for, for me faith is uh, up and down. You know there's times when it's more apparent and more part of who I am. Other times where it's less of an impact. Um, but, uh, but I really don't particularly believe in any religion at all. Uh, you know, I'm very open as far as what works for me or what works for others. It's up to them, in my opinion. I mean, if you want to be a Catholic, great. If that helps you, good for you. You know, if you want to be happy, clappy and put your hands in the air and praise the Lord, good for you. I, it, whatever works for you is fine as far as I'm concerned. And uh, I've thoroughly enjoyed evangelicals. You know, I love their services, but I absolutely despise their politics and that and, and the tendency to go for money. So I, I can't handle that bit anymore. So I'd, I'm Episcopal now. Uh, and that sort of works because it's a rather liberal faith. Um, Liberal in that it's accepting. Very accepting. Yeah, I mean you can, uh, you can be anything really in the uh, Episcopal Church. You can be a transgender, you know, a LGBTQ, whatever, and no one really cares. This is, it's very accepting, very loving, and that's kind of how I am in my life. I, I think people should live and let live. Hmm. I'm going to end it there, John. Live that was a good point, live. wasn't it? Yes, it was. That was live a good end. Live and let live. <laughs> I noticed that pieces of John's life settled into place neatly because he was always open to an opportunity, even if it wasn't what he'd originally planned. 
John just kept moving towards what he wanted his life to be without getting bogged down when things changed. Having learned over time that staying true to himself brought him the least amount of regrets. John maintains a kind of open, experimental worldview, and he's extremely satisfied with the life he's lived. This was very apparent to me as he worked to keep pace with the ever-inquisitive Rusty, a dog he might have overlooked, but didn't. <laughs>